Greetings, everyone. Hello. We'll start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the examples that Paul and his uh, assistant Titus have given us. Paul was faced with two imprisonments in Rome. And between those imprisonments, he didn't stop. He didn't let up. He kept busy with your work. And please help us to do that in the midst of our trials that we experience in life. To be faithfully following you. So we ask that you would help us to diligently study this book, this epistle, and to learn from it and to grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, we're looking at Titus, the epistle of Titus, where we see Jesus Christ, our pattern. The flight characteristics, the facts, first of all, the author of the book of Titus is identified as Paul, a bondservant of God. The word bondservant refers to a slave, a person under authority and ownership of a master. In other words, Paul was saying that he was under the authority of Jesus Christ. Titus is believed to have been written between Paul's imprisonments in Rome. So between AD 62 and AD 65, and thus between Paul's two letters to Timothy. Last time we looked at 1 Timothy, which is believed to have been written shortly before Titus, and then 2 Timothy was written after Titus during Paul's second imprisonment. The landmarks, the book of Titus is basically a church operations manual designed to establish elements of a church order and witness. In it, Paul emphasized the need for purity and leadership and soundness of doctrine. He probably wrote to Titus before traveling to Nicopolis where he spent the last free winter of his life. This brief letter focuses on Titus' role and responsibility in the organization and supervision of the Cretan churches. As is typical of his letters, Paul frequently stressed the importance of sound doctrine, the wholesome biblical teaching that he knew every church needed. The letter is structured around three different manifestations of God's grace, each one functioning as the basis for orderly instruction and behavior in the church. Next, the itinerary, an outline of the book. In chapter one, we read about the rule of a sound church. So we can say that's the ecclesiastical, the nature of the rule and the necessity of the rule. In the second chapter, we read about the rules for a sound church. The, we might call that the domestic rules. Precepts for a sound doctrine and power for sound living. And then in the third chapter, we read about the responsibility of a sound church. We might call that the social. The outward responsibility, how we as Christians are to be sound, responsible citizens of the civil government under which we live. And then we read about the inward responsibility to one another, to the, to the church, to the body of Christ. The gospel, 
Paul's summary statement to Titus highlights two key elements in the gospel, its means and its mark. God's grace is the gospel's means and is marked by our hope in Jesus' return. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is a very, very significant statement there. God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'll talk more about that when I get to the Granville Sharp rule. Notice that we are looking for something called the blessed hope. It is not called the irresponsible hope, as in, I can check out of my responsibilities because I'm going to be out of here. It's also not called the escape route hope. I'll live how I want and then turn to Jesus at the last moment. It's called the blessed hope because believing that Jesus will come back at any time keeps you vigilant and on your toes, keeps you honest and inspires you to live a pure lifestyle. What we do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back should be driven and motivated by the grace with which he purchased us. Though we shouldn't treat that grace like a get out of jail free card or a license to disengage from the living responsible life. Paul called um, our, our hope in Jesus' return blessed because it causes us to live a holy life that's pleasing to the Lord. I think of the parable of the pounds that, that Jesus told in, in Luke chapter 19, where the master entrusted resources to his servants. And he said to his servants, occupy till I come. And that's what we should be doing while we are looking for that blessed hope. I'm also reminded of the statement that uh, Jesus made when he was a 12 year old child. He said, I must be about my father's business. And that's what we should be doing too. We should be about our father's business. The history, the legacy of Paul's life is apparent. Through his various missionary journeys, he preached the gospel and touched the lives of many people throughout Asia Minor and Europe. It seems Paul ministered on the island of Crete for a short time before leaving Titus there to continue the work, much like he had with Timothy at Ephesus. Besides the short stop there on the way to Rome, no further ministry of Paul is mentioned. Originally colonized by the affluent Minoans in 3000 BC during Paul's, life, during Paul's time under Roman rule, Crete was largely a rural culture. The church was probably started there sometime in the AD 50s. In the book of Titus, in the epistle of Titus, there's a mention of Nicopolis. Um, this is the Nicopolis region. You can see in, in the lower right-hand corner where we see where Nicopolis was located in, in Greece, on the western side of Greece. Uh, Paul wasn't yet in Nicopolis at the time that he wrote to Titus, but in his letter to Titus, he said uh, he urged Titus to come and visit him when he was in Nicopolis, because he said, I am determined to winter there. So Paul 
wintered uh, in that following winter in Nicopolis and he wanted Titus to come and visit him. So that's Nicopolis. There's the closer up view of the city of Nicopolis where it's located there on the western side of, of the Greek peninsula. Titus was the pastor of the churches, church or churches in, in Crete. Crete is an island and down in the right lower right corner you see where Crete is located. The island that you see off to the east, off to the right here, that's near Israel, that's, that's Cyprus. Crete is, is located further west, it's kind of southeast of, of Greece. And that's where the action takes place in this story, you might say. There's a closer up view of the island of Crete showing some of the some of the cities. The timeline, just to show you where, where Titus falls in the, in the timeline of Paul's ministry. So beginning on the left hand side, we see the Paul's first missionary journey in 847 to 49. And then the Jerusalem Council sometime around 50 AD. Uh, Paul's second missionary journey, uh, AD 50 to 53. Paul's third missionary journey, AD 53 to 57. Uh, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem in AD 58. And Paul's in imprisonment in Rome then was 60 to 62 AD. After Paul was released in 62 AD, that's when Titus was written. And if you remember from last time, um, the book of 1 Timothy would have been written shortly before that. So Titus is, is written in between the two epistles of Timothy. And then later after that, Paul was arrested once again and taken to Rome where he was in prison. And from that imprisonment, he was not released. So both Paul and Peter were executed sometime around AD 67. Now that will come into play again when I talk about briefly about the ideas about when the book of Titus was written. The travel tips, the implications and applications of the book. Paul called for church leaders, elders, bishops, pastors to have integrity. Integrity implies wholeness, consistently giving Jesus control of every area of your life and holding fast the faithful word as you have been taught. Integrity doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that false criticism won't step because you live above reproach in all your ways. A church should be unified. Discipleship is all about learning and growing together as one body in Christ. In all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, that you may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Uh, what a wonderful thought that is. That by your godly and inclusive behavior toward others in the body of Christ, you further beautify God's truth. How do we do that? We do that by living life with a capital L. And here's what I mean by that. Leave the old life. Live the new life and look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of Christ. 
for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying godliness and worldly lusts, that's leaving the old life, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, that's living the new life, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good doctrine produces both responsible citizenship and a protective attitude toward God's church. Some people come to church not to worship or learn, but out of their own ulterior motives and purposes. But a healthy body can purge its own illnesses. We have a responsibility to keep the body of Christ focused on God and to counter divisive attitudes in a gracious but firm way. The purposes of the epistle to Titus a number of reasons for the letter are evident in the book of Titus. Paul wanted to instruct and encourage Titus. He wished to inform Titus how to amend a defective church. And he asked for support in sending Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos, an eloquent speaker, to aid him. The theme of Titus is soundness in Christ. He wanted to maintain soundness in Timothy, in, excuse me, in Titus, and in especially the, in the church that, that Titus was pastoring. A key verse in, in the book of Titus. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Yes, we are to speak the truth in love, but there are times, there are instances, occasions where we need to speak out strongly forcefully, assertively, for the truth and against heresy. Non-biblical quotation in the book of Titus, and this is a very interesting instance. One of Paul's three extra-biblical citations, he, he uses three uh, extra-biblical citations throughout his, throughout his epistles. One of, so one of these three extra-biblical citations is found here when he refers to the heathen poet Epimenides. The Cretans are always liars. And this is such an unusual statement that I'll refer to it several times throughout my study. None of these are cited, none of these three are cited as from an inspired source with any formulas like thus saith the Lord or it is written or the scripture says, rather they are cited as a truth contained in a book not a verification that everything in the book is true or that it is an inspired source. So by Paul quoting from these works, these extra biblical works, he's not endorsing them in their entirety. There are two great grace texts in the epistle to Titus. Two of the important grace passages in the New Testament are found in this small book. One of them is found in chapter two, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is just a wonderful verse, a wonderful passage. 
the other grace text is in chapter three, verses five through seven. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The book of Titus has a lot to say about good works, but good works are always connected to grace in the New Testament. We think, of course, of that passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. So the New Testament does advocate good works, but good works are always a result of the grace of God. Titus speaks of the pattern of good works, having zeal in good works, being ready to do good works, being careful to maintain good works, and the necessary usage of good works. But all of that is made possible by the grace of God. Now, the grand rule, sharp rule, which I referred to earlier, when we looked at the passage, which tells us that uh, Jesus Christ is our God and Savior. And so the grand rule, sharp rule is very relevant, very significant here. Who was Granville Sharp? Well, that's a person's name. His first name was Granville. His last name was Sharp. Granville Sharp was the, the son of an archdeacon and grandson of an archbishop. He was an English philanthropist and abolitionist. And he lived uh, in the 1700s and 1800s. He is known to students of history as the Abraham Lincoln of England for his key role in the abolition of slavery there. Though he was untrained theologically, he was a student of the scriptures and a very capable one at that. His strong belief in Christ's deity led him to study the Bible in the original in order to defend more ably that belief. And that's exactly what he did. Through such a motivation, he became a relatively good linguist, able to handle both the Greek and Hebrew texts. As Sharp studied the scriptures in the original, he noticed a certain pattern, namely when the construction article substantive, chi, substantive, involved personal nouns, which were singular and not proper names. They always referred to the same person. He noticed further that such a rule applied to texts dealing with the deity of Christ. So the construction that we're looking at is article, substantive, chi, substantive. So I'm going to abbreviate it as T-S-K-S. -S. So when we have the article, the definite article, the, and then we have a substantive, basically a noun, a person, place, or thing. It can be a, a participle or an adjective, but it's, it's something that's used as a substantive, as a noun. And then chi is the Greek word for and, and then another substantive. So we have that construction. We have the definite article, then we have a substantive, and another substantive. So that's what we're looking at. In other words, 
in the TSKS construction. The second noun refers to the same person mentioned with the first noun when, and these requirements are, are essential, neither is impersonal, neither is plural, and neither is a proper name. Now, with regard to that last requirement, neither is a proper name, I should point out that God is not a name. Uh, when you talk about the name of God, we're talking about the, the sacred name in the Old Testament, what is called the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Bab, He, which scholars usually render as Yahweh. Uh, in our English translation, it's usually translated as Lord in all capital letters. That is the name of God. When you just refer to God, that's not a name, it's a title. So that's significant in our discussion. Not counting the Christologically significant passages, there are 80 constructions in the New Testament which fit the requirements for Sharpe's rule. The substantives, substantives always refer to one in the same person. Even Sharpe's opponents could not find any exceptions. All had to admit that the rule was valid in the New Testament. So cultists sometimes try to claim that uh, when the scripture in Titus refers to God and our and God and Savior Jesus, it's referring to two different beings. And that, so they claim that, that it refers to two different beings. But what Granville Sharp found was that when those requirements that he set forth are met, and they are in this case, that it always refers to one and the same person. So Jesus is both God and Savior. And another thing to note about this is how what a remarkable achievement this was. Because if you remember, Granville Sharp was born in the 1700s and lived in the 1800s. But this was long before there was any, any uh, computer to analyze the text of the New Testament. So he did all of that clear back in, in those days. So it was indeed a remarkable achievement. The, there are two Christologically significant texts which employ the Granville Sharp rule. One is here in Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We've seen this before. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God and Savior do not refer to two separate distinct beings. They refer to one person, Jesus Christ. The other is in 2 Peter 1.1. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So once again, Jesus Christ is God and Savior. So now let's look at the the text of the epistle to Titus. Point man, pitch hitter, clutch player, go-getter. These are ter these terms describe a person who can be counted on. Someone who knows what to do and how to do it and who works tirelessly to get it done. Titus was that kind of person. Titus had to be. Much of his work, like the Apostle Paul's, was dangerous, unpopular, difficult, and tiring. 
involve traveling, introducing strangers to new ideas, constantly making new friends, constantly, consistently battling new enemies, and even deflecting threats on one's own life. The number of people who could share such a load was small, but the early church desperately needed them. Not just anyone could start and maintain a new church in a hostile world. Yet Titus rose to the challenge. The believers in Crete lacked leadership and were suffering as a result. False teachers were taking advantage of the absence of sound doctrine. Judging from Paul's exhortation, the harmony and morals of the young congregation were instructed. Paul relied on Titus to help them establish their leadership and make up their other deficits. Their struggles are repeated in every age, and this letter is as relevant today as it was to Titus. The opening greeting of Titus is longer than Paul's usual greeting and contains a reminder that God has promised eternal life and brought it to pass in due course. Although Titus contains only 46 verses, it covers a wide range of topics. It is a key New Testament book for church organization with its guidelines for elders, pastors, and other believers. Furthermore, it contains one of the clearest statements about God's grace in all of the New Testament. It explicates the, the significance of Christ's first and second coming. The book contributes to our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation in the Christian life. But it is known most for its practical instruction about the roles of men, women, and servants and its instruction for dealing with false teaching. A church needs organization, sound doctrine, and good teaching to survive. In this letter, Paul gives Titus a succinct overview of how to lead a church. Whereas the letters to Timothy emphasized sound doctrine, the letter to Titus emphasizes good works. There were influential people in the church who were motivated by personal interest in selfish gain. In his letter, Paul exposes the ways this was affecting the doctrine and practice in the church and urges Titus to champion purity, service, and kindness toward others. There is a contrast between the kind of person Paul instructed Titus to appoint as an elder and the many rebellious people to be found in Crete. Paul warns Titus against them. Paul reminds Titus that salvation is not based on our own works of righteousness, but rather is the result of God's work, kindness, and love toward us. We are unable to do good works in our disobedient and selfish state. Salvation in Christ frees us to do good works and the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit enables us. I think of the scripture in the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, 6, which talks about all our righteousness, righteousness righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So even the, even the best things that we can come up with in our own just don't cut it. In order to be freed to do good works, we need the grace of Jesus Christ. There is a contrast between the way people lived before they became Christians 
and the good lives that follow Christ's saving work in them. God wants his people to devote themselves to doing good works. Older men, older women, young women, young men, and servants should adorn the doctrine of our God, of God our Savior in all things. In his letter, Paul exhorts the believers at Crete to, to display the testimony of good works to outsiders. While good works are a Christian duty, they are also a gift from God. Through justification in Christ, God declares us righteous. We must have this legal standing in order to qualify before God to do good works. Redemption removes us from the jurisdiction of Satan by paying the debt incurred by, by our sins. At the same time, it places us in the family of God so that we might be his own special people, zealous for good works. This letter says it was written by the Apostle Paul, and there is no reason to doubt that he wrote it. Although some scholars have raised objections in the last 200 years or so, these objections rest mainly on the assumption that Paul died at the end of the imprisonment described in Acts 28 and did not make the journey described in the letter to Timothy and Titus. Well, that is simply not the case. Historical, historical details within Titus itself give us no reason to abandon the traditional view that Paul wrote this letter. He was imprisoned twice, as I mentioned, in Rome, and the first time he was released, and the second time was the imprisonment that resulted in his death. It was between these two imprisonments that he wrote the epistle to Titus. It seems that Paul wrote Titus sometime between his two Roman imprisonments between AD 62 and 65. Tradition holds that Titus was written shortly after 1 Timothy around AD 63. Crete is a large island, approximately 160 miles long and 35 miles wide in the Mediterranean Sea. The island is located 100 miles southeast of Greece. The Cretans developed a relatively prosperous agricultural and a trading economy, creating one of the best known business centers of the ancient world. Such prosperity also fostered a great deal of excess. In chapter 1, verse 12 of Titus, Paul quotes the Greek poet Epimenides, as I mentioned, writing, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul may have planted church on the island of Crete during a missionary trip after his first imprisonment in Rome, which ended about AD 62. When Paul departed from Crete, he left Titus behind to set in order the things that were lacking in the church. Titus is mentioned numerous times in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's most trusted assistants. He was a Greek and was converted by Paul. He first appeared on the scene in Galatia. He assisted the apostle on some of his missionary journeys and went with Paul and Barnabas to the Jerusalem Council. Titus became, intentionally or not, a test case as a Gentile for whether circumcision was required for salvation. Paul mentioned Titus several times in 2 Corinthians. After Paul sent a severe letter to that church in Corinth, he dispatched Titus to discern their response. 
we see Paul's trust in Titus, shown by sending him on such a delicate and difficult mission. Paul was filled with joy because Titus brought back news of the Corinthians' repentance and sorrow over their sin. Paul also sent Titus to encourage the Corinthians to give toward Paul's collection for the poor in Jerusalem, and he had complete faith in Titus' integrity. Later, Titus went to Dalmatia at Paul's request, and we'll see more about that in the next lesson when we look at uh, 2 Timothy. Early church tradition says that Titus returned to Crete and spent the remainder of his life there. Now let's look at a couple of questions that arise in the, in the study of the epistle to Titus. I've mentioned this several times about the, the quote that Paul gave from Epimenides in Titus 1.12. Doesn't Paul himself involve himself in a paradox or a contradiction here? Paul quoted a, a Cretan, Epimenides, who said Cretans are always liars. But if this was said by a Cretan, and Cretans always lie, then he too was lying. But if this Cretan was lying when he said Cretans always lie, then Cretans do not always lie, and there's a lie in scripture. If, on the other hand, this Cretan was telling the truth about Cretans, then Cretans do not always lie, at least not the one who said this. In either event, by incorporating this statement in scripture, the apostle seems to have included a falsehood. Paul seemed to be aware of this dilemma and quickly added, this testimony is true. In other words, the Cretans generally lie. But at least on this one occasion, a Cretan uttered the truth when he characterized the Cretans as liars. In this way, the paradox is broken and no falsehood is included in scripture. And speaking of, of falsehood in, falsehoods in scripture, uh, just because the Bible reports a falsehood doesn't mean that the Bible is uh, endorsing that falsehood or asserting it to be true. Clear back in the Garden of Eden, when Satan appeared to Eve, he said, you shall not surely die. Well, that's a lie, and it is in Scripture, but Scripture is just reporting that lie. It's not asserting it to be true. Another question that arises is, what should be done with the disobedient? Should they be instructed, or should they be expelled? Uh, Titus 3.10, compared with 2 Timothy 2.24 and 25, should the wayward be instructed or expelled from the church? This verse says we should reject the wayward. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, the adulterous member was excommunicated. But in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, leaders are exhorted to instruct the wayward. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. The severity of the action of the church will depend on the seriousness of the sin of the member being disciplined. Those who are living in immorality should, after being exhorted to change, be excommunicated, since their sin has a leavening or contagious effect on others. Even so, if, if they repent, they should be reinstated in the church, since the primary purpose of discipline is not to reject, but to reform. The main difference in the severity of the discipline was in the penitence of the person being disciplined. If the person repented, he was to be reinstated. 
If not, then after the first and second admonition, the person was to be rejected. The contributions of the epistle to Titus. This letter brings out something of what we might call the civilizing function of Christianity. Titus was clearly in charge of a very young church in a very unpromising situation. Elders had not yet been appointed, and Titus was to appoint them. By contrast, the church that Timothy served was well established, and their bishop was not to be a recent convert. In Crete, where Titus found himself, there was the possibility that a candidate for the eldership might have unconverted children or children who were wild and disobedient. The elder himself must not be, uh, must be not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. He is to function in a community of which one of your own people said, as I've mentioned many times, Cretans are always liars, evil roots, lazy gluttons. A testimony with which Paul evidently agrees. In that situation, it would seem that neither Paul nor Titus had a moment's hesitation about establishing a church. The letter is clear evidence that the Christian church is not intended to function only in cozy, respectable, middle-class environments. The gospel is one of the most unpromising. This is seen also in the instructions to those who have been converted. The older women are not to be addicted to wine. The younger to love their husbands and children. Slaves are not to steal from the masters. People are to respect authority and do what is good and not engage in slander. All of this is surprising in directions to a group of Christians. It shows both that these Cretans were unpromising material and that Paul expected them nevertheless to produce qualities of Christian character. Moreover, the gospel is to be taken to such people, despite the strong opposition of rival teachers. Some of these are successful, these rival teachers, for they are disrupting whole households, Paul said, even though they aim only at their own dishonest gain. Apparently, there was quite a Jewish flavor to the false teaching. Its adherents belong to the circumcision group. They teach Jewish myths and they claim to know God, even though their actions show this to be a lie. And they argue about the law and engage in foolish controversies. But this letter makes it clear that the strength and the nature of the opposition makes no difference. Christian teachers are to press on with their task of evangelism and of leading the converts into a lifestyle that brings glory to God. Paul takes no position of superiority, but makes it plain that he owes everything to the kindness of God our Savior, and specifically, to what God has done in Christ. He puts the highest standard before the Cretans. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The letter makes it plain that the Christian way is an urging of people not to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but rather to rely on the grace of God. This grace teaches, it educates people like the Cretans and any other group. We should not miss Paul's reference to the Pharisee as he waits for the blessed hope 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Note once again that the way he speaks of Christ, God and Savior. The letter emphasizes what God has done to bring salvation and the certainty of its culmination when Christ comes back. That concludes our study of the epistle to Titus. We'll conclude with a word of prayer and then open it up for discussion. Our great sovereign Father in heaven, we do thank you for all the instructions you have given us through the epistles of Paul, instructions to leadership within the church, instructions to members, memberships within the church, how we can serve you and glorify you, how we can work together, how we can be unified, united, in doing the work that you assigned to us. We ask that you will help us to do just that in Jesus' name. Amen.